Every Christian knows the story of Jericho, and we're all familiar with the character of Rahab who hid the spies. But what are we missing that might help us understand her role in the conquest of the mighty city of Jericho? What lessons can Rahab teach us today? Well, get your hiking boots on. We're about to march around the city of Jericho one more time. Join us now for The Land and the Book. Our host is a guy who wishes he was in Israel right now, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And I'm John Geiger, wishing I was with Charlie in Israel, too. But it's just good to sit down together for this early January conversation, isn't it, Charlie? John, it's always good to sit with you, but you're right. I wish we were both uh, talking (laughs) while we were tromping around somewhere in Israel right now. Well, let's dig into today's look at current events from the Middle East. And at the start of the new year, both Israel and the Palestinian Authority released new census data. What do the numbers show for both groups? Yeah, the numbers really show the impact politics can have on something that should be fairly straightforward, like a census report. Now, for example, the Palestinian Central Bureau of Statistics reported that there are 13.7 million Palestinians worldwide. Of that number, they said 5.2 million live in what they called the State of Palestine, with another 1.6 living in what they call Historical Palestine. The problem is that those 1.6 million that they're counting are actually Arab citizens of Israel. Israel's numbers tell a slightly different story, as you would expect. Israel's population at the beginning of 2021 is 9.3 million. Now, of that number, almost 6.9 million are Jews, that's about 74%, and almost 2 million, by their count, are Arabs, 21%. Comparing the two sets of numbers leads to some interesting observations. For example, the Palestinians predict that there will be an equal number of Palestinians and Jews, about 7.1 million, in the land by the end of 2022. Hmm. The problem, though, is Israel keeps counting citizens while the Palestinians are focused on ethnicity. So are those 1.6 million or 2 million, depending on whose numbers you use, uh, to be counted as Arab Israelis? Or are they Palestinians? Ethnically, uh, there will likely be an almost equal number of Jews and Arabs living in the land at the end of 2022. But the population of the state of Israel will be over 10 million, while the population of the areas under Palestinian control will be under 6 million. So what the numbers really show is that they need to be read with a great deal of care. Story number two, the election campaign has begun in Israel. And, of course, we're used to a two-party system with regularly scheduled elections and year-long campaigns. So, Charlie, help us understand what's happening there right now. Okay, here's an Israeli election guide for dummies. The election campaign season there is only going to last for three months. The next election is now scheduled for March 23. And right now, we still don't know exactly how many parties are going to be running. At least four new parties have been formed in the past two weeks. Benny Gantz's Blue and White Party, which was part of the last coalition government, received the second highest number of uh, votes at one point, is crumbling. It might not even receive enough votes to be in the Knesset after this next election. Uh, Right now, most of the new parties are forming around dominant political personalities rather than around fundamental differences over major issues. At least three parties are fighting for the political right wing, which is where the majority of Israelis are politically. And the major point distinguishing them is that the one is the Likud party leader Netanyahu, while the others are former allies of Netanyahu who now want to unseat him. 
In Israel, people don't vote for a candidate. They vote for a party. The seats in the Knesset are then apportioned based on the number of votes they receive, and uh, the leader of that party then becomes prime minister. Now, historically, no party receives enough votes to rule by itself. Likud is expected to garner more seats than any other party in this next election, but they're also expected to receive only about half the seats they need to form a government. That's why the election itself is just the beginning of a process that unfolds as the different parties try to form a coalition that will garner them at least 61 seats in that 120-seat Knesset. Right now, the pundits are predicting that this could be the ugliest election Israel has ever seen. Hmm. And that's saying a lot over these last two years with all the elections they've had. But this could be the ugliest because it's focused so much on personalities rather than on issues. About all that can be said for sure is that, at least right now, no one party seems to have a clear path to victory. And some of the newer parties that are based on a single strong leader could have a very short shelf life if that leader can't deliver the votes. You're listening to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and as you've noticed, there's never a dull moment in the Middle East. Well, recent headlines warn of a major earthquake that could soon hit Israel. I'm wondering, how do they, you know, have any sense that this is scientifically true? How serious is the threat, and how would they possibly even know when it might take place? (laughs) The headlines reminded me of that truism about newspaper journalism. If it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. Uh, In other words, the, the headlines are often far more dramatic than the actual story behind them. But there is some scientific reality here. A study was begun 10 years ago when a drilling rig was placed in the Dead Sea to take core samples through the layers of sediment. They've been studying those core samples for all that time, and the results of the study were just published. They show a cyclical pattern of earthquakes in the region. Now, that by itself isn't surprising. The entire Jordan Valley is part of the Great Rift that extends from Syria down to Africa. It's a geologically active region in terms of earthquakes. Uh, The researchers discovered that a destructive 6.5 level earthquake hits the region about every 130 to 150 years. The last major quake was in 1927, so the researchers are predicting that another major quake could hit the region in the coming years or decades. Now, if that 130 to 150 year pattern holds true, we should expect that earthquake to hit sometime between 2050 and 2070. That's not exactly imminent. Uh, They also discovered that an even larger 7.5 level quake occurs every 1,300 to 1,400 years. Hmm. The last one took place in 1033 AD, so we should expect another 7.5 quake about 300 years from now. Now, I don't want to make light of the report, John. We know from the Bible and from history about serious earthquakes that have hit the region in the past, and the Bible also describes future earthquakes that will happen in connection with Christ's return. We also know that predicting earthquakes isn't an exact science. The past cycle might suggest an earthquake won't hit for another 30 or 40 years, but one could happen tomorrow. Of course, the same thing's true in California and in other earthquake-prone areas around the world. But the bottom line is, we do know an earthquake's coming. We just don't know when. There could be one at any time. But for certain, we know that there are several mentioned in connection with the events surrounding Christ's return. And he doesn't need to time his coming to match the geological data. The earthquakes predicted in the Bible will happen on his timetable, not on the results based on the sediment found in the Dead Sea. Amen. 
Well, archaeologists have uncovered a ritual bath dating to the time of Jesus near the Garden of Gethsemane. Charlie, I think of a ritual bath, and I'm thinking uh, of a four to five foot long white Mm. porcelain bathtub, maybe claw feet, maybe not. I suspect that's not what they discovered. What was the physical discovery, and what's the significance of this discovery? Yeah, and a typical ritual bath had a set of steps that go down into a pool that we would say is uh, oh, similar to a, a small swimming pool, uh, but the person would walk in, totally immerse, and then walk back out. Uh, now, the story itself on what they found is fascinating. While developing a walkway underneath the road in front of the Church of All Nations, uh, workers stumbled on this mikvah, this ritual bath. Now, it's not the mikveh itself that's unusual. You know, there are hundreds dating back to the time of the Second Temple. They, they've been found all through Israel, including around Jerusalem. Uh, some were used for ritual purity before going up to the temple. Others were used for religious conversion, to prepare for marriage, and for other ceremonial or personal cleansing. But ritual baths have also been found in connection with the production of olive oil and wine. Because of its location on the Mount of Olives, this ritual bath appears to have been used in connection with the production of olive oil. Now, before going out into the field to harvest the olives or press the oil, the workers would immerse in a mikvah to make themselves ritually pure. Obviously, the hill was called the Mount of Olives, which suggests it's covered in olive trees. And nearby was this natural cave where the olive oil press itself was located. Uh, the, The significance is this is another detail connecting the location to the events that took place at Gethsemane, the night Jesus was betrayed. Now, hopefully, this is something tourists will be able to see uh, once Israel is open again for tourism, that is. And that's a look at current events in the Middle East here on The Land and the Book. Coming up, it's a conversation about Rahab, her role in the conquest of the mighty city of Jericho. You know, there are dimensions to her life that quite possibly you and I have overlooked. Fascinating details unfold for us in a conversation yet to come. So I hope you'll stick with us and tell a friend about Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Every Christian knows the story of Jericho, and we're all familiar with the character of Rahab who hid the spies. But what if we could see the entire story through her eyes? What lessons might we learn? What are we missing that might help us understand her role in the conquest of the mighty city of Jericho? Get your hiking boots on. We're about to march around the city of Jericho one more time. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. And as you're lacing up those boots, let's consider this quick idea on how you and I can be more effective in sharing our Savior with our Jewish friends. Life has its moments, things fall apart, and sometimes you have to call the repairman. What's that got to do with sharing your faith? Let's ask Beth Tavlin, who's with Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. Beth? Well, one day I had to call the oven repairman, and he was working on my oven, and I really was struggling with how do I open the door to share the gospel with this person? And finally, I just decided I'm just going to do it. And I handed him a gospel of John, and I said, this could be the most impactful gift anyone has ever given you, if you will read it. The most impactful gift. Those are great words. And he looked at me right in the eye, and he said, I'm going to read this from cover to cover. And I was so touched by the way he responded that my insecurities and my fear had nothing to do with what the Lord could do in his heart. 
Yeah. And the thing is, we can give our Jewish friends that powerful New Testament. It is the most impactful book they'll ever get. It is. So don't be afraid, you say. Don't be afraid. Encouragement from Beth Tavlin with the Olive Tree Congregation, where she serves and co-leads the women's ministry and is also a congregational administrator here on The Land and the Book. After more than 30 years in pastoral and denominational ministry, John Ravel launched Lifeline Chaplaincy in Connecticut. John also serves as chaplain for the Stamford Police Department, Westport Police Department, and Connecticut State Police. He also provides on-demand chaplaincy services for other police departments and first responder agencies in southwest Connecticut. Thanks for connecting with us today on The Land in the Book, John. Thank you, John. It's a blessing and a pleasure to be here. So your book, The Testimony of Rahab, is part of a larger series of five stories of Bible characters who, in your words, survived in times of doom and despair. A lot of us feel we're there right now, though. Well, Rahab is is one of those. Who, who are the others in this series, John? Well, I'm working currently on Gideon, and he experienced some fears and horrors that I don't think most of us appreciate. I didn't until I started getting into the character yeah. and the biblical data more. But then there's Jehoshaphat, and then the prophet Isaiah, and then finally uh, Habakkuk, for whom the series is named. Yeah. Well, let's get right to uh, the character of Rahab. And as we do, let me say that our conversation at times might not be appropriate for younger or more sensitive listeners, and we just wanted you to know that, right? That's right. John, it seems to me that uh, we do Rahab a disservice when we read the Jericho story and just label her a prostitute and leave it at that, because... She almost certainly didn't arrive at that place by choice. Your thoughts? No. uh, It's easy for us to view Bible characters from the sterilized 21st century perspective of Christians and evangelicals. And in in Rahab's time and in biblical times, uh, they lived in some scenarios that are just unimaginable to us. And when you go through the first five books of the Old Testament, and you see some of the prohibitions, um, particularly in Leviticus 19 and 21, you realize that the Canaanite culture was displaying practices, they were participating in practices that were absolutely abhorrent then and are certainly abhorrent now. And it's easy to just gloss over Rahab and think that she happened to be on the scene and she happened to be at the right place at the right time not knowing the, the darkness that she had experienced that was typical of the Canaanite culture, and particularly uh, girls growing up in that culture. Okay. John Ravel currently serves as chaplain for the Stamford Police Department, and he's written God Alone, the Testimony of Rahab. Let me share from the book a passage where you describe what might have been her feelings. She says, My value was determined by my ability to satisfy the disgusting lusts of cruel men, But if I were to leave home, the only way I could survive as an unmarried woman would be as a prostitute. So why should I leave the safety of my home only to live the same life in isolation on the streets? You know, that that is a sad place to be, John, it seems to me. It is, and we're not used to thinking in those terms in our current culture because women, particularly in the United States, over the last couple of hundred years have been recognized as having equal rights, and our Constitution guarantees every person uh, civil rights. But in those ancient cultures, it was very patriarchal, and a woman or a child had no protection apart from the father or the husband. 
And so for any woman to leave the protection of that home uh, system would mean that the only way she could survive is if she sold herself out on the streets. Many of us say, you know, why didn't she just leave her life as a prostitute? But it may have been impossible. I mean, uh, during one of my trips to India, John, we actually interviewed a prostitute who claimed to be born again. And I said, if you know this lifestyle that you're living is not pleasing to God, why not leave it? She said, and who will feed my children? And I replied, well, well, your church will help you, won't they? Won't they help you find a job? Won't they help you financially? She told me, absolutely not. Even at church, she was looked down upon. So I suspect that Rahab's lifestyle was one that she was shoved into rather than one that she chose. How should this uh, impact our assessment of her, John? Well, again, we're used to thinking in terms of 21st century culture, but in ancient cultures, women were instruments to accomplish uh, the men's desires, either sexually or domestically, to provide uh, children or to maintain a household. And the kind of lifestyle that they lived typically was not chosen. They did not choose that lifestyle. It was forced upon them. And so for a girl, and I go into this in in the book, uh, a girl would have no say. Uh, An adolescent girl, 12, 13, 14 years old, could very well face the prospect of a grandfather or an uncle having sexual intercourse with her or having sexual relations with her as part of the Canaanite culture and part of their religion. And she had no say in that. After more than 30 years in pastoral and denominational ministry, John Ravel launched Lifeline Chaplaincy, and he joins us today on The Land and the Book. You did a really nice job trying to capture Rahab's feelings when the Israelites marched around Jericho the first day and then left. Uh, I'm sure she had some expectancy there. She'd, you know, made the deal with those two spies. Anyway, you write, the priests said their gods, especially Molech, faced Yahweh and turned him back. The single Israelite God was no match for all of their gods. My brother and sister and their families returned to their homes. The rest of the day, I struggled. If Yahweh was as strong as I believed, why did he not take the city? I thought the feeling that perhaps I had been overlooked, even betrayed, by yet another God. Uh, She had to have been pretty sad at that point, I guess. I would think so. And I think any of us who have been in a situation where we expected God to act in a certain way, and then he didn't, we can relate to that. She had placed her life on the line, literally, in order to protect those spies and to follow their directions. And she expected God, Yahweh, to act in a certain way, and when he didn't, she drew the conclusion that she had been abandoned and betrayed. You've done a nice job of researching the God of Molech, widely worshipped by the people of Jericho. And I think this is one of the reasons perhaps the Israelites feared trying to to conquer this uh, city. Uh, Some fearsome practices, in addition to the the sexual issues you've uh, pointed out, child sacrifice? That's right. Um, Any culture that follows a Judeo-Christian philosophy and, and worldview values human life. But that worldview is not common uh, across cultures. And in ancient cultures, life was expendable. And if it was possible to gain the gods' approval and protection by sacrificing human life, they were certainly uh, happy to do so. And so that was part of 
the overall religious culture of the Canaanites, uh, sacrificing uh, a firstborn child to that pagan god Molech. Let's go now to the uh, the actual scene where the walls come a tumbling down. It's cute in a kid's song, but uh, to have been there inside, uh, as you take us in this book, that had to have been terrifying. Um, it, it must have been horribly fearsome. I can only imagine when the spies promised her deliverance, they didn't say how it was going to happen. In fact, they didn't know at that point. Mm-hmm. So what she probably expected was the standard warfare tactics of the day of a an army coming and building an embankment up that 30-foot uh, mound upon which the city was built, and then another 25 to 30 feet of walls. And that didn't happen. Uh, the typical invasion strategy was to build an embankment and then bring all the troops up and cross over that embankment into the city. And that didn't happen. She is with her family inside that room, and after the seventh time around the wall and after the shouting and the blowing of the trumpets, the earth started to shake. And so I'm sure it was terrifying. I would have been terrified if I were in that situation. Yeah. I also enjoyed the lessons that you lay out for us in your book. I want to want to dig into a couple of those. Lesson one, Yahweh loves his people deeply and is committed to accomplishing his wonderful plan for them, and nothing can stop him. That's a lesson we need today. Oh, it's it's so easy to forget that. We, we are so prone to think in terms of our current situation and the immediate circumstance, but God works on the long-term plan, and he has a, a long-term plan that he is accomplishing, even if we can't make out how that's unfolding. I came to appreciate this in studying Genesis chapter 50, uh, where Joseph's brothers come to him after their father passed away and said, before he died, our father said, don't kill us. And Joseph said, am I in the place of God? You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. And that shows from the very outset that God had a plan for good to accomplish his good purposes on behalf of people, saving people. And so everything that unfolds, even in the 21st century with the COVID pandemic and the economic crisis and the political upheaval that we've seen in the the riots and the social unrest, even in the midst of all of that, there is the absolute confident assurance that God has a plan he hasn't abandoned that plan. He has not panicked. He has not gone into panic mode and, mm-hmm. and is sitting there wringing his hands, worrying about what's going to happen. He has a plan that is good for his people, and he's going to accomplish that plan. What do you think is the biggest gap in our understanding of Rahab and her role in the whole story of Jericho? The fact that God values people despite how we might view them. It's so easy for us to look down on others uh, from a judgmental standpoint, and especially uh, Christians, evangelicals, and I'm guilty of this, seeing people who may not be socially acceptable and thinking less of them. Mm -hmm. But God's pattern has not been so. Uh, He showed very special interest in this girl who was driven into a lifestyle that she likely had no say in, And we see that with her, we see that with uh, the woman at the well, uh, with Jesus. She was at the very bottom of the social ladder. 
in a, a Jewish person's mind. And yet Jesus specifically sought her out. And there are multiple stories, uh, Judah and Tamar. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Ruth would have been despised. Uh, Bathsheba. Uh, time and time again, you see God singling out key individuals that may have been despised by the current culture, but he demonstrated that he had a special concern And time and time again, we see in Scripture, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it says that he dwells in the heart that is contrite. Mm -hmm. So God's value system is different than our human value system. God loved Rahab, and he saved her miraculously. Yeah. We've got just 30 seconds left. John, I'm going to invite you to pray for a woman who right now feels totally unvalued, looked down upon. And uh, maybe in, in a similar vein uh, as Rahab might have felt. How would you lead in prayer on her behalf? I would be delighted to. Father, thank you for your grace and your love. And we know that all ground is level at the foot of the cross. And when we are there bowing before you, we have no right to look down on anyone. We can only look at each other from an equal standpoint and look up to you in praise and adoration. Father, right now I ask that you would touch any listener who feels dirty, who feels unworthy. Help them to, especially a woman who may be able to identify with Rahab, help her to realize and to receive your love and your grace and your mercy. And thank you that you pour it out on us abundantly. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that prayer. John, a fascinating conversation. You've got to come back when we hear from some of these other Bible characters. And I would be delighted. We'll look forward to that as well. Looking forward to Charlie's coming back in this next segment. Your questions, his answers here on The Land and the Book. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us here at The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, excited to be Introducing this next segment, it's a favorite with so many, many listeners. When we get to take a listen, or a look in our case, at uh, your questions, questions that have kind of snuck up on you as you're perusing through the scriptures. And Charlie's Bible is open, got a smile on his face because you like this segment too, Charlie. I do, John, and the smile is on my face. Okay, let's dig in with Ruth, who takes us to Mark chapter 4, Jesus calming the storm on the sea. Uh, She says that in one resource she read, Jesus called the disciples cowards. Did Jesus call his disciples cowards? Another reference uh, said the disciples could have slept during the crossing if they had believed Jesus telling them to go to the other side and observed Jesus sleeping, showing his faith that he would reach the other side. Were the disciples wrong in using their sailing skills during the storm? Yeah, and normally the Greek word that's used has the idea of being timid or fearful. Uh, In Revelation 21, it does have the idea of cowardice, but in the account of the stilling of the storm, I think Jesus was rebuking the disciples simply for their lack of faith that led them to fear being drowned. In verse 40, Jesus uses this word when he says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Well, that suggests that their fear of the storm came from their lack of faith in his ability to handle the situation. But after Jesus stood and commanded the wind and waves to cease, Mark then reports that they became very much afraid, and he changes Greek words there. The word he uses is phobeo, from which we get the English word phobia. It has the idea of being terrified. So they were scared of the storm, but now they were absolutely terrified as they watched Jesus control the forces of nature 
with a simple word from his mouth. Uh, For that second part of the question, I don't believe the disciples were wrong in using their sailing skills. Jesus had gotten into the boat and told them, let's go to the other side. He entrusted himself into their capable hands as sailors. So in verse 36, Mark records that they took him along just as he was in the boat. The expectation is that they were to sail him to the other side, and that's what they did. Another question about this uh, calming of the storm on the sea. Was Jesus sleeping in a sheltered area so that the water didn't reach him and wake him up? Or did he get drenched too? And is there any significance to Mark's mentioning the other boats? Most resources that this uh, listener says that she's read don't mention the other boats, while others acknowledge the boats, but don't really have much to say about them. Yeah, and we have to go back. Some of the early church fathers talk about Papias, the bishop of Hierapolis in Turkey, who repeated the testimony of the early disciple that Mark wrote his gospel in Rome as he recorded the preaching of Peter. So, in essence, Mark's gospel has Peter's fingerprints behind it. Uh, He was the disciple and interpreter of Peter, it says, and handed on his preaching to us in written form. Now, I, I, I say that just to say, uh, I think when you see little little details like there were other boats, that's one of those points that shows us Peter was an eyewitness, and he just adds a little detail. Matthew doesn't record that detail, but Matthew wasn't called as a disciple until after that event. So Matthew gives us kind of a general account as he had heard it. Mark tells us what was actually happening from Peter's own words, and that addition of the extra boats is one of those tiny details that is included because Peter saw it. Now, in terms of Jesus sleeping, well, Mark says he was asleep in the stern on the cushion. I think uh, he was curled up either under that back seat of the boat or perhaps uh, just sleeping on the cushion out in the open. Uh, Certainly those boats are very small. Now, he was exhausted after a full day of ministry that included healing and preaching, having fallen asleep, uh, the wind, the waves, the rocking of the boat, and probably even the water breaking over the sides and sloshing about didn't wake him. We would, we would say it in our terms today, he was dead to the world in sleep. <laughs> what I find fascinating is as soon as he woke up, his deity comes into view and he controls the very forces of nature. In fact, that's one of those great passages that shows Jesus was fully human and fully God. You're listening to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. This is Questions and Answers. Your questions, Charlie's answers. Let's get to this one from Lois, who admits, I don't understand much of the book of Revelation. I love her humility. She says, I don't puzzle over it much, yet find it interesting. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6 really puzzle me. Does all of this fit within the rapture? Thank you. Yeah, and uh, what I'd end up saying is those verses really focus on uh, resurrection and then the kingdom, but they don't relate to the rapture. Uh, The rapture happens seven years before the start of Jesus' return to earth and the beginning of the kingdom. When Jesus returns to earth in chapter 19, Satan's thrown into a prison for a thousand years. That's chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. And then John describes those who had been killed uh, during the previous seven-year tribulation period being raised back to life to reign with Jesus. Now, uh, those are individuals in that resurrection who were put to death uh, for their faith in Jesus during the tribulation period. We also know from Daniel chapter 12 that the Old Testament saints will be resurrected at that time. So church-age saints, that's us, we're resurrected earlier at the rapture, and we'll be reigning during this period. Uh, The Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints, are resurrected right at Christ's second coming and uh, get to reign with him as well. Now, the other issue is that thousand-year reign of Christ. The Old Testament predicts the coming of a time of righteousness on earth, and uh, certainly uh, that's predicted in passages like Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. Uh, The book of Revelation just adds one final detail. 
it says that kingdom that's coming will last for a thousand years on earth and then continue on in eternity in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, But if you put the pieces together, the resurrection that's there in Revelation 20 is not the same as the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. All right, another Revelation question, this one taking us to chapter 18, verse 2. The listener wanting to know, what is the tense in the Greek for the phrase, she has become a dwelling place? When the angel cries out with a mighty voice saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Charlie, help us understand this. Yeah, and the tense there in Revelation 18 is aorist which describes, are you ready for this, John? Punctiliar action. Now, what that means is it pictures the action as a single event. Uh, The aorist tense is kind of like viewing a snapshot rather than seeing a movie. Unfortunately, the tense there isn't as helpful as you might think in interpreting the passage, since John is seeing all this in a vision. So in chapter 18, he begins, after these things, I saw, and then he relates what he saw uh, as the angel uh, announced Babylon being fallen. But then later in verse 8, a voice from heaven says, in one day her plagues will come, and there it's future tense. So in reality, uh, he pictures this vision kind of in a a single picture, that that aorist tense. But the use of the future tense tells us that indeed from John's perspective and now from ours, the events being pictured are still future. Joan writes, I saw a post the other day where a man claimed there is a reference to abortion in the Bible. And he quoted Numbers 5, verse 11. I read it, and she says, that doesn't sound like abortion to me. What say you? Yeah, the passage which starts in verse 11, goes to the end of the chapter, is sometimes described as God's test for a possible unfaithful wife. Uh, Let me start with the conclusion and then, then come back to it. The passage has absolutely nothing to do with abortion. In fact, it presents something almost entirely opposite. The punishment for a woman guilty of adultery was that she would be unable to conceive and would remain barren. Now, I say that because of verse 28. The woman declared innocent will be able to, quote, conceive children. That's the New American Standard. Or, quote, have children. That's how the NIV translates it. The Hebrew literally says she'll be able to sow seed. The idea is she'll be able to become pregnant. The opposite of being able to sow seed would be to be barren. And the language used in the curse, may your abdomen swell and your thigh waste away, is figurative language speaking of the woman becoming barren. Now, while that possibly could include the idea of inability to carry a child to term, which would be a miscarriage, that's not the same as an abortion. Life is in God's hands. He has the authority to grant life or to take life away. As Job said, following the death of his own children, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Abortion is different than a miscarriage because it involves a human deliberately taking the life of an unborn child, which would be the equivalent of murder. So this passage in no way condones murder or abortion. And we'll squeeze in one more question from Zulma. Do you think that the daughter of Pharaoh and Pharaoh himself thought that a god brought the baby Moses to them, maybe sent from their gods, and that's why Pharaoh and everyone else accepted him? Yeah, I don't believe she saw the baby as a gift from her gods. And I say that because in chapter 2, verse 6 there in Exodus, when she opened the basket and saw the baby crying, she said to her attendants, this is one of the Hebrew babies. So likely she knew her father's command that every boy that's born you must throw into the Nile. 
She saw the child, realized the parents were following the letter of the command, but had done so in a way that preserved the child's life. And right. there's one other detail. Uh, some believe Pharaoh's daughter there was a woman named Hatshepsut, who later ruled Egypt at that time. She was a strong-willed lady who even made the statues of her with a ceremonial beard of Pharaoh on her chin. So if she was the one who chose to take and raise this child, she likely did so because it pleased her, and I doubt if she sought her father's permission. Well, your question is welcome anytime if you'll send us an email at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. And as always, we point you to our website where you can learn about today's guest, past guests, future programs, and more. That website address, thelandandthebook.org. Thelandandthebook.org. always a sobering thing to walk through a cemetery, to read the cemetery stones, to think these are real people here we're talking about. When those people are your own loved ones, where the pain is even greater and those memorials mean even more. But what about a memorial to Bible characters? Did they have such things? This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Uh, Charlie Dyer, our host, I'm curious, your your, uh, devotional today is talking about a memorial. What kind and for whom? Yeah, it's a memorial to Absalom, and it's one he built for himself. Really? All right. We're headed for 2 Samuel chapters 14 through 18. If you're curious, we'll get there right after we pause for this Holy Land experience. I'm Josiah Sawyer, and uh, the, the trip here was very authentic because the land in the book was exactly what I came for and that's what I got. Connecting the land with the book just made my faith deeper and made me understand that Jesus truly is God and he is man and that came through loud and clear to me. And the one thing that really impressed me was when I learned that in Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin, which was Jesus's stomping grounds, and they didn't believe him, and no one was healed there. But those who were healed showed faith at first, and and Jesus knew that they had deep faith in him, and that impressed me very much. Always great to connect with folks who've been to Israel and. God has put something on their heart that they're they're still walking around with. Right, Charlie? Yes, it is. I'm, I'm so excited when people talk about Israel, I get excited. Well, you know, we're coming to the character of Absalom. To me, one of the sadder stories in Scripture, the son of a king, a guy who had everything going for him but wanted more. And I uh, <laughs> wonder where you're going with your devotional today. I'll, I'll be interested to listen, Charlie. Well, thanks, John. Well, th- actually, today's devotional is going to take us just outside Jerusalem. I want to show everybody a monument, but before I do, I need to tell you a little bit about this man who's connected with it, this man named Absalom. Absalom was arguably the favorite son of King David. Certainly, his picture would have appeared on the cover of GQ magazine if if that magazine had been around in that day. He was definitely Mr. Tall, Dark, and Handsome. Uh, Here's how the compiler of 2 Samuel described Absalom in chapter 14. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. 
Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair from time to time when it became too heavy for him, he would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Now, that's over five pounds of hair. The next time you get your hair cut, look down and see how much is there, and then imagine putting it on a scale opposite a five-pound roast. This man had a lot of hair. Absalom looked good, and he knew it. He also knew image was important, and he decided to project an image of power and status. 2 Samuel 15 starts this way. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. Back in chapter 13, we're told that each of David's sons was given his own mule to ride. But Absalom decided that wasn't flashy enough. He got himself a chariot pulled by horses. And then he hired a 50-man entourage to run ahead of the chariot. Everyone knew when Absalom was coming down the street. It was the ancient equivalent of a presidential motorcade tooling down the highway. Or to put it all another way, David gave each of his sons a sensible Chevy for transportation. But Absalom decided he needed a Cadillac Escalade. Only the best for Absalom. Ultimately, Absalom developed a plan to capture the hearts of the people, and it was a plan worthy of any modern politician. Chapter 15 continues, Absalom would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, well, your servants from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. Now, pause for a second, by the way, that representative was just down the road at the city gate, which was the courthouse of the day. But Absalom stopped these people before they made it to the city gate. Now, let's continue with the story. And Absalom would say, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom was the consummate politician who kissed all the babies, promised a chicken in every pot, a car in every garage, and it worked so well that he almost seized the kingdom from his father David. His plan eventually failed and Absalom was killed, but what does all of this have to do with Absalom's memorial that I mentioned at the very beginning? Well, the answer is found in chapter 18, where the writer provides a final obituary for Absalom. The writer says, During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. Back in chapter 14, verse 27, we're told that Absalom had three sons and one daughter. But the passage only lists the name of the daughter, which suggests the three sons had all died, either at birth or in infancy. Absalom hadn't produced a male child to be his heir, but that was no problem. He decided a more appropriate memorial to his greatness would be one made out of stone, a pillar to be erected in the king's valley near the southern tip of the city of Jerusalem. And it must have been constructed rather well because the compiler of 2 Samuel reported the pillar was still called Absalom's monument to this day, which means it was still around when 2 Samuel was compiled. And that brings us to where we're standing today. If you visit Jerusalem with a less than reputable guide, you might still be shown Absalom's monument. 
It's in the Kidron Valley, across from the Temple Mount. Unfortunately, this monument has nothing to do with what's described in the Bible. This monument was constructed just before the time of Jesus, almost a thousand years after the time of Absalom. It was constructed as a tomb, and it wasn't for Absalom. Absalom constructed a stone pillar that he intended to be a lasting memorial so people would remember his name. And in Hebrew, the word for monument or memorial is the same as the word for hand. It's the word yad. The monument built by Absalom to honor himself was called Absalom's hand, his raised fist that said to all who come by, look at this monument and remember my greatness. Absalom thought so highly of himself that he built a monument to remind people of his greatness. He wanted to construct something that would outlive him, that could last for generations to come to inspire awe and respect. But sadly, we know he was a legend only in his own mind. His boastful claim to fame and glory, just like the monument he built for himself, didn't last. Absalom went down in history as a colossal failure, and his memorial has vanished. The monument you're looking at right now, this so-called pillar of Absalom in the Kidron Valley, has nothing to do with the boastful youth who set out to make a name for himself. So as we turn to leave, what lessons can we carry away from observing Absalom's failed life? Two passages of scripture come to mind. The first is Proverbs 27.2, which says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, someone else and not your own lips. And the second is James 4.6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Absalom spent his life pridefully promoting himself. Eventually, he thought he was great enough to replace his own father, David. In a final ironic twist, Absalom, the narcissist who thought so much of himself that he weighed his own hair and rode in a chariot pulled by horses, ended up being killed after getting his thick hair caught in tree branches while riding a donkey. God has a way of balancing the scales of justice. Absalom ended up with nothing but a temporary stone pillar. David, the man after God's own heart, kept the throne and his kingdom endured. Wow, great lessons and a sobering story, that one, for sure. Absalom, a life that could have meant so much more. You can hear Charlie's devotional again at our website, The Land and the Book. .org. Also, there are information about today's guest, past programs, and programs still to come at thelandandthebook.org. Charlie, you and I also have a number of books there that people can explore as well on the Books tab. They can, and, and I love writing, and I know you do as well, John, and if people want to see more about what we've written, it's all there for them to look at. And we welcome your email anytime. Tell us how the program is connecting with you, how God is using it in your life. Our email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Now, if you're enjoying this program and, and you've, you've listened this far because you do, why not tell a friend about The Land and the Book as well? We're a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Thanks for listening. 